Well, the moment you've been waiting for is here, Micah 6 8. <laughs> I invite you to stand in honor of reading the Lord's Word together. If you're able to, we'll be reading Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people, and he will argue it against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? Or how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam ahead of you. My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, proposed, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousand streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the child of my body, for my own sin? Mankind, he has told you what is good, and what it is the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we, we trust in your presence. We trust in your ability to speak and guide us. We trust in your ability to make us more like your son Jesus. So we invite you to be the one speaking today. We pray that you would be restoring souls. We pray that you would be doing whatever it is you desire to do to each and every one of us. We just pray for obedient hearts and a willingness to respond accordingly to your word. We thank you again for the Lord Jesus who came and lived among us, who did give himself for our transgressions. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thursday at noon, I was driving home from a pastor's meeting in town. The Ministerial Association playing in my car was a sermon from a memorial service of a well-known pastor and teacher, R.C. Sproul. He died a few years ago. I, they had the sermon sent to me. I subscribed to his ministry for a while. And anyway, so I was hearing a well-known pastor speak at another pastor's memorial service. I came home, and then pretty soon I was on the internet, on YouTube, listening to interviews with other pastors, just about a subject I was interested in, and then I came over to the church, I sat behind my desk, and on my desk I counted that Wednesday afternoon, or Tuesday afternoon, Thursday, here we go. I had six Bibles, and two commentaries about Micah on my desk. And then through my computer and my cell phone nearby, I had access to lots and lots of more godly, edifying material. And the first thing I did before I began to revisit a sermon I had started on was ask God to be speaking through my sermon. I wanted God to speak. 
But I brought up all that stuff I was listening to and all the books I had to, to propose this to you. Could it be that God is always speaking? In, in Psalm 19, David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims the work of His hands. Day after day they pour out speech, night after night they communicate knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. It seems to me that God is always speaking. God is a very vocal God. The whole Bible opens with a repetitious phrase, and God said, and God said, and God said. The author of Hebrews says, long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times in different ways. In these last days he has spoken to us by his son. And so to look at Jesus, we literally see the word of God. As John would tell us in his opening of his gospel account, the word became flesh. So is God speaking? Look at Jesus. One of the prophets that God spoke through, to use the author of Hebrews' words, was the prophet Micah. And God shows up to Micah here in this sixth chapter of the book, and he tells Micah, Now listen to what the Lord is saying. And I was tempted to preach a sermon on that right there. <laughs> listen to what the Lord is saying. What I just said is true, what David writes is true, and what the author of Hebrews writes is true, that God is always speaking. His word is always going out to the ends of the earth. God is speaking loud and clear through His Son, and what we see about His Son and how we come to know His Son in the Word of God, and in His Spirit still around us today. So it's not that God is mute. It's not that God is muffled or we're not on the right frequency or that God is closer to some people and some people have a better connection or a better understanding. It's just that we need to obey here like Micah obeys God and we need to listen to what the Lord is saying. And I, Kevin, I say, I think I am, I just still don't hear it. What if it's, I'm not listening and what I mean by that is, is when I say back to God, well, that's too hard. I can't do that. Well, well you got the wrong number. This is woodland. <laughs> well, those people will never come to Christ. God can't be prompting me in their direction. Or, or I have other abilities and other gifts. Maybe it's just the heat of the moment, but God's not calling me to do that. Or, well, people would think little of me, or I would be ashamed to confess that, or, or whatever the case may be. God commands Micah, a Morishite, a little, lowly, rural, country bumpkin who lived in the same day as the grand, famed prophet and advisor to the king, a guy named Isaiah. And God shows up to Micah for Micah's message. I, I know you're not Isaiah. I know you're not a prophet in his position. I know you feel unqualified outside of Jerusalem, but I have a message for Jerusalem. And so, Micah, now listen. Don't just hear, listen. The HCSB did a good job of giving us two words to correspond 
to the original um, Hebrew words, now listen, other translations take out the now, and the original language is more like, I pray that you comprehend this. I beseech you to listen. I beg of you to hear me. And God calls lowly Micah, and he says, Micah, I have a court case for you. God is summoning Micah to plead the case. The jury is all of creation, mountains, hills, enduring foundations, the creation that's been around to observe God's people, and then that's the accused, his people, Israel. So, we read, Now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against this people, and he will argue it against Israel. And some of you, I have to count, this is our tenth week in Micah, and you say, let me guess, more judgment, more hellfire and brimstone. Let me guess, Israel's been bad. And because we're human and we're sinners, we start taking the side of Israel, of humanity, of people, and we say, oh great, God's going to argue a base against Israel. I didn't say that one coming. And we start feeling sorry for Israel. We start feeling a little indignation. At least I do. We start saying things like, I'm tired of getting railed against. I'm tired of hearing how bad I am, and let's go back to the New Testament with God and love and forgiveness and grace. And then Micah pulls out a curveball. God pulls out a curveball, and he asks us a very loaded question, very thought-provoking. The novel idea, God told Micah, hey, plead my case against Israel, but then he says, first, it's their turn. He says, my people... What have I done to you? Or how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Didn't see that one coming. Again, a little background. We're in the third and final oracle of Micah. His, his book is generally broken up into three oracles. One against the northern kingdom, the next against the southern, and this last one against Jerusalem itself generally. I'm somewhat persuaded, not that my studying in this for 10 weeks has really produced any, any, anything but assumptions, but I'm somewhat persuaded that, that these oracles were presented all at the same time. And I feel like it's almost as if the argument is coming to a head. That God through, through Micah has been laying judgment after judgment, now not without mentions of the messianic hope and with, with Jesus and the hope found in him to come, but even so... It's almost as if Micah's audience is feeling the weight, feeling the burn, as it were, and it's almost as if they're coming to the, one of those classical moments, what do you want from me, God? Right? And God says, you can't handle the weight? Tell me, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Testify against me. And it stopped me, Kevin, dead in my tracks. I felt like God asked his people a question, and so I, identifying myself as one of his people, should ponder my answer. I challenge you here, now, in Woodland, what is your answer in your head and your heart? What has God done to you? How has he wearied you? Speaking about Micah first, it, it could be taking into consideration the context of Micah's scripture and the, their history at this time, that the people might be saying, wearied... 
I have to bring offerings for this, sacrifices for that, I have to play religion and do these rules and those rituals and blah, blah, blah. And we say, yeah, yeah, really, I don't think I can relate. But I wonder if you think that somehow God is demanding you with a whole new set of rituals and regulations. So, uh, such as for you to come to church, read your Bible daily, pray a lot, give money, and in return you feel like you get nothing but sin committed against you. Health problems, wayward family members that rack up worry, sometimes rack up debt. Bad relationships you didn't ask for, social persecution, and bad things happening to good people. And so when God asks you today, how have I wearied you, you don't know if you should answer because it sounds naughty. Or you don't know if it's alright to blame God for the things you think he's wearied you with. But the emotions that that question brings up in me and you. God, how have you wearied me? Have you heard yourself throughout the whole book of Micah? How dare you, Israel? You did this and you did that. And our hearts are prone to be quick to defend our ego. Sometimes we never grow up. Calvin has this habit, I don't know if you've noticed, of, of throwing a temper tantrum at times. And I can't give you a specific example because they happen daily. So a general example is after his 43rd cup of milk for the day, lo and behold, he, he comes and begs me for milk, and upon hearing no, no, he'll scream it louder. Because milk um, doubles in his vocabulary as a cuss word. And so he screams milk. And I can do two things in that situation. I can yell back in response and say something like, no, go sit on the couch. That's his timeout spot. We find that timeouts are more effective because he yells at us, again. <laughs> or I can tell him to sit on the couch and in the process explain why, yes, I know he's a two-year-old, you're sitting on the couch because you've asked for milk. I gave you a polite response informing you that you may not have milk. And now you're being disobedient and crying for milk when you already know the answer. And sometimes what the Word of God does is it reveals to us our reason for conviction. It just doesn't say to us, you're guilty, but it then says, here's why. <laughs> and sometimes Calvin goes to the couch screaming and crying and never seeming to get the idea of why he's on the couch, and that, that's us a lot. <laughs> when the correct response is when I say to Calvin, do you understand? And he replies, I understand and doesn't ask for milk for at least ten more minutes. I've not wearied Calvin. I've not done anything except reveal to him what he's done wrong. That's not a bad thing. If it's received, as it should be, if correction is made. And so if you're answering God, how have you wearied me by saying you've laid judgment after judgment, hearing the truth does not need to be a thing that brings weariness. Because if we have beef with God, God turns around and has the trump card. God turns around and says, testify against me, but know this. I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam ahead of you. My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, proposed, and what Balaam, son of Baor, answered him, and what happened from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. God's talking to Jerusalem. The northern kingdom's been wiped out. Southern kingdom has been threatened. Jerusalem has had Assyria at their gates. Babylon's coming in a matter of a hundred years. Micah's been speaking on behalf of God, bringing judgment after judgment. And some things 
never change. God's people are like, it can't be our fault. Sure, we're sinners, but have a little praise, God. You're all controlling. It's all in your hands. All this is happening, and you have the audacity to ask us, how have you wearied us? And God says, let me show you the track record. Let's look at the facts of where I have intervened in human history and take a step away from the blame game of what you think I'm guilty of. And some things never change. God has given redemption, direction, and grace to his people. He reminds them of their origin. He says, Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. God's people started in slavery. God's people were a mistreated, abused, enslaved race, enslaved by the biggest and baddest and the only superpower on the face of the planet in their time. God's people have no weapon in their armory, no lobbying power with the government, and in fact, leading up to their liberation, God's people had a government-mandated issued abortion on all their male babies to thwart any sort of thought rising among the ranks. Hey, we have armies of able-bodied men. <laughs> One mom hides her baby boy. Her baby boy comes across the hands of the Pharaoh's family. The baby boy is raised in the palace. His name is Moses. After murdering an Egyptian who was abusing a Hebrew, Moses flees, and out in the desert, watching sheep, God shows up in a burning bush. I'm saving my people, Moses, and I'm doing it through you. No army, no bigger guns, no alliances with other nations, just God and an 80-year-old man named Moses and his brother Aaron against the most powerful nation on planet Earth. God wins. God wins. God has given you redemption. That is your origin. That is where your identity starts. God makes it clear. He's a holy God. One sin, that's all it takes against the holy judge, and you might as well be enslaved to the most powerful nation on planet Earth. Only you're enslaved to the most powerful agent on planet Earth, the fall, the sin. The earth is subjected to futility. It's in the bondage of corruption. That's what Romans tells us. And every sin contributes to that weight, and we're slaved, enslaved to sin. And it's God, one man, against the entire world of sinners doing sin. God wins. Jesus lives a life without sin, the only one to do so. He takes our place since we're guilty, and he's not. And he offers himself for the price of every single sin we've ever committed, and he redeems us from the slavery and the power of sin. That is our origin. God's track record towards us is one of redemption and one of direction. God continues through Micah. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam ahead of you. These three led the Exodus, led God's people out of Egypt. Some would suggest that these three personify leader or shepherd, which is one category, priest, and worship, that Moses is the prophet and leader. As Deuteronomy 34, 10-12 says, No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent to him to do. Against the land of Egypt, 
to Pharaoh, to all his officials, and to all his land, and for all the mighty acts of power and terrifying deeds that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. God gave his people direction through the leader and shepherd of Moses. He gave his people a priest through Aaron and his sons, directing the people in right relationship with God, reminding them of his holiness, reminding them of the consequences of sin, reminding them that they need to give their time and treasures to God. And finally, some commentators would remind us of Exodus chapter 15, verses 20 through 21, which states, Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with their tambourines and danced. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. Miriam directs the people to a rightful response of God, acting on our behalf as worship is simply exalting God. And so God has given his people direction through leadership, through priestly mediation, and through worship. God has given us a prophet, priest, and worship guidance in Jesus. He is the greater Moses. He is the sacrifice himself, and he has left us the spirit to bring us before the presence of God in worship. So God has given his people redemption, he's given his people direction, and he has given us grace. We read from Micah about God's people. <clears throat> My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, proposed, and what Balaam, son of Baor, answered him, and what happened from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. Balak, Balak king of Moab, proposed that Balaam would curse God's people. Some of you know the story. God miraculously intervenes in the memorable story where a donkey spoke. Balaam is on his way, and an angel blocks the way, and only the donkey can see the angel. So the donkey holds back and holds back, and finally, Balaam hits his donkey. To which the donkey replies, why did you beat Very novel question. <laughs> finally, the angel shows up and, and says, you're not going to curse Israel, you're going to bless Israel. Which is a really relevant to our prophet Micah and very relevant to us. God knows we deserve curses. But God speaks blessing over his people. Because God's people are a blessed people. God's chosen people. Finally, these two places, Acacia to uh, Acacia Grove to Gilgal. Some Bible translations call Acacia Grove by its Hebrew name, Shittim, which means Acacia Grove. <laughs> but these two places... Um, are another testimony to God's grace. Because at Acacia Grove in Numbers 25, God's people give themselves to idolatry and sexual relations to outside of God's people. It's a very interesting and graphic story if you want to read that later. But by Joshua chapters 2 through 4, this very same place where God's people failed is the place that Joshua is sending out two spies into the promised land. And eventually they leave the Acacia Grove, a place of failure and sin and idolatry, and cross the Jordan River and come to Gilgal. God is with them. And his grace takes them from their place of depravity and sin and delivers them to the place of conquered land. And that's where God meets us, isn't it? Even for believers who yet again find themselves in the acacia groves of their lives, in the middle of sin and depravity and failure, and we deserve curses, and God comes and speaks blessing and grace and reminds us 
Your origin is my redeeming you. I have given you direction for your life. And though you aren't following it now, I will give you the grace to do so. But also, in verse 5, are very important words framing this grace. Remember and acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. Remember, in this sense, is actualizing the past into the present. It's, not, it's more than just remembering the answer to a question on the quiz you're taking. But as Micah just brought up salvation history, God's deliverance in history, so his people ought to remember here. And furthermore, acknowledge is this idea of knowing by experience the Lord's righteous acts. So in the context of this passage, the Lord is saying to his people, testify against me because here's what I know I have done for you. I have redeemed you. I have directed you. I have poured out grace after grace upon you, so revisit that. <laughs> Recall that and relive that and taste and see and know that I am good. That's what the Lord is saying here and it's no different for us. Micah's audience was to recall what the Lord had done for them as a people in the past and to relive it. And you and I are to profess and testify to the Lord's greatness through Jesus who has redeemed us and directed us and has given us grace do we actualize the past we read in this book into the present? Do we know by experience that our God has redeemed us and he directs us and he gives us grace? But God's people have this weird tendency to never sit, savor, and love his redeeming, directing, giving grace. <laughs> we often want to focus on when he does us the favor of pointing out sin, and we want to focus on, oh, so I sin. You're so demanding, God. You're such a stickler. And we say with the very breath that God gives us to the very God who became flesh and died for us. And God's people respond, respond to Micah next in this passage, and they do so with sarcasm, snidiness, and resentment. Listen here in verses 6 through 7. What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before Him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousand streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the child of my body for my own sins? What do you want from me, God? <laughs> That's what that is. And the first verse is a normal sacrifice. God has made the judgments. He has shown that not only is he innocent and blameless, but he's loving and gracious. And he has reminded them, whenever I've shown up to planet Earth, it's been to help you people. <laughs> Redemption, direction, grace. But his people are still focused on the judgment part. So they're saying, what do you want, Lord? Do you need another sacrifice? Is that going to work? What lever do I pull, God? What prayer do I pray? What do you want? And then they mock God, they escalate it and say, maybe, maybe you want a thousand rams. Maybe one ram isn't enough anymore. First Kings 3, 4 and 863 would tell us that Solomon could afford to do that. <laughs> the people are in essence saying, maybe we're not rich enough for you, God. Maybe you want us to offer something that's impossible. You want 10,000 streams of oil? Do you just want to break open every bottle we have? How about our sons? Will that satiate you, God? Do you need my firstborn? Is that good enough for you? 
That's not a heart of worship. Not a heart of love. That's not a heart that is truly remembering and acknowledging God's goodness. And that's not a heart that understands the gospel. And the gospel is in the Old Testament in some ways. Hebrews 11 tells us that the people of old understood that it was sincere faith in God that they knew they would save them. And the Lord just recounted through Micah, I've redeemed you from captivity. I've given you direction through leaders. I've shown myself to be full of grace and forgiveness, redeeming the very place where you sinned against me. I showed up and said, leave here and enter the promised land. But meanwhile, for God's hearers, they ignore the grace. They ignore God's heart. They ignore God's love because they can't handle a smack on the wrist. We can't handle discipline. Lord, don't tell us we're bad. It's your fault. Do you need my son to satisfy your disappointment with me? Do you need my house, Lord? Are you going to take everything from me? What do you want, Lord? And it is this very attitude... This very self-righteous, snarky, snidely, mocking attitude that God is after. It's this very attitude that isn't able to humble itself, but is pumped up and full of pride. Don't tell me what to do, Lord. You send people to hell. You're mean. Says the angry, pompous little man who was redeemed by God, given direction by God, and given grace by God. You never save me. You never direct me. You never give me grace. God says, mankind, he has told you what is good and, and what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. I feel like the Lord is saying, don't play your little game. Don't act all high and mighty and make me out to be some of the gods you have worshipped as if I demand child sacrifice. But the reason we want to get angry at God the reason we want to make him sound more demanding than gracious is because what he does demand of us is so simple, but we can't even fulfill that. Because the problem then and the problem now, people can't offer a billion rams and couldn't find it within ourselves to offer our firstborn child to God, so we don't have the capability, but the irony is, is what the Lord does want, acting justly, loving faithfulness, and walking humbly with Him. We don't need money, nor do we need to offer children to do those things. We have a body. We know what those actions are. We just don't do them. So we ignore that we're rebellious when it comes to those things, and we want to make God out to be the bad guy. God's not the bad guy. <laughs> He's redeeming us, he's directing us, he's being gracious to us in return. He's saying, can you just act justly? <laughs> Is that really too much to ask, to ask, act justly? Don't let this word act confuse you as not making a show, but it's really do justly. Do what's right, just do what's right. Well, what's that look like? I don't know, quit ripping people off. <laughs> don't badmouth people, have a little honesty and decency, accept responsibility, don't shirk it. Look at the law of God. It says to honor people, don't murder them, don't lie to them, don't steal, don't sleep around, don't covet. Be righteous. God is saying, you know what it is. Be it. Forget the thousands of sacrifices. Forget, Lord, what levers do I need to pull to get to you to do what I want you to do. But instead, love faithfulness. The word here is, has said, it's the common steadfast love of the Lord we sing about. It's what the 
It's the word used to describe God's covenant loyalty. It's what Jesus means when he says, God so loved the world. It's what Jesus means when he says, I love you, now love one another. So instead of seeing our time with God as a labor, and what levers and what sacrifices, God is saying, can you just soak in the fact that your origin is in my redeeming you? The path you ought to walk is the one I've laid out for you and the direction I've given you. And when you fall in sin, can you rely on my grace? You just Can you love that? Can you just live in my love and not act like every time God points out a sin, it's the end of the world and you have to do a million things to appease God? God says, I'm happy. I'm not served by human hands. Love is faithfulness. So many Christians walking around with no joy in the Lord at times. His faithfulness is life-giving, not life-taking. His faithfulness is bursting with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and that's who He is, and that's how He enables us. And so instead of snide, snarky, what do you want from me, Lord? You're so overbearing, Lord, so mean. How dare you save me, love me, direct me, the audacity. Can we just walk humbly with our God? That means we accept conviction. <laughs> that means we accept what the Lord wants in, us, uh, wants in us and wants to do in us. That means the discipline of the Lord produces the fruits of repentance and righteousness, and that's okay. That means what he says goes. There's a pastor I listen to out of New York City. His name is Timothy Keller. On his website, his church, he has a slogan, at least last time I checked, that says, Skeptics, Welcome. And he writes a lot of books designed to reach out to the skeptics. And I came across a series of videos this past week, and he just gave himself up for the masses, I think, for crucifixion. <laughs> just hard question after hard question. Do Christians think homosexuals go to hell? Is Jesus really the only way to heaven? Aren't Christians narrow-minded? And all the usual questions, and though Tim Keller has a way with words, the connecting link I heard in all of his answers is really just this response here. And he was saying, in the end, if God is God, and if he presented himself through Jesus, which is a really good thing if the God of the universe is this perfect, loving, merciful, righteous man in God, Jesus, and if he's spoken and said how things are, what, what really is it our right to think, hey, God, I have a better plan. God has told us what to do here. There isn't a bad, this isn't a bad thing for us to bear. God, you're so demanding. And his demands are to act justly, love faithfulness, and walk humbly with your God. You really can't say, how horrible to that. If every single person in the world were to give in to those, these horrible demands, it wouldn't be a bad world. So if there's distance, if there's a trial between you and God, know this, God has told us what to do here. God speaks. He's always speaking. He wants us to act or to do justly, to love His faithfulness, and to walk humbly with Him. Guess what? Lord Jesus came to earth to redeem us so that we can do these things. Lord Jesus directs us in how to do these things because we find, let alone sacrificing a thousand rams, we can't even do these simple things apart from God. So the Lord Jesus and His Spirit directs us, and when we do fail, because we do fail at doing justice, loving faithfulness, and walking humbly with Him, there is grace. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, sometimes we think you set up the sacrificial system to appease yourself. But it's really to show us what sin does, because we wouldn't believe it. Father, you tell us that you're not served by human hands. All those sacrifices were not because you wanted them so much as because we were guilty. But Father, today sometimes we think we have to pull levers and do everything we can to please you, but you revealed to us here that long before we even knew of you, you were saving us and redeeming us. Long before we stepped foot into this church, you were writing a book for us, and your spirit was going before us. And long before we committed the sins that we think are unforgivable, you said, my grace is sufficient. So, Father, you've given us some simple demands here, really, to do justice, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with you. But sometimes we find them hard to follow. So we pray and ask for the grace to do those things. We pray for your spirit to give us the ability to do those things. We would love you and thank you for it. Thank you that your heart towards us is one of love and grace. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.